The rule of three states, things that come in threes are inherently more appealing than those that don't. With the next generation GMC Sierra, Canyon, and Sierra Heavy Duty, we couldn't agree more. Whether you choose to have the world's first six-function multi-pro tailgate, available only on the next generation GMC Sierra SLT, AT4, and Denali models, to confidently take on heavy loads with the available 6.6-liter V8 Duramax turbo diesel in the GMC Sierra Heavy Duty, or to get behind the wheel of the only mid-size premium pickup on the road, the GMC Canyon, you'll realize all three help you do one thing. Go professional grade. Step up to GMC and get 20% below MSRP on next generation 2019 GMC Sierra Double Cab and SLE Crew Cab models with a traditional tailgate. We are professional grade. GMC. Offer includes price reduction below MSRP and purchase allowance. Not available with special financing lease and some other offers. Take retail delivery by 9319. See participating dealer for details. Hi, this is Tony Ruggiero, the Dew Sweeper. You're about to listen to an episode of The Tour Coach, which is going to give you an inside look at coaching golf at the very highest level from on the PGA Tour with my guys all the way to here at Mobile, Alabama in the Dew Sweeper Dome as we help folks of all skill levels, all walks of life, learn to achieve their golfing goals. Hey everyone, welcome down to the Tour Coach Podcast. My name is Cordy Walker, one of your hosts here on the Tour Coach. Today you are listening into one of our live podcasts, the second one we've done today with Bill Harmon of the legendary Harmon family. He's an instructor for decades. He caddied for Jay Haas. He has so many good stories and this was one of uh, the coolest 45 minutes or hour of my week. Some of the stories that Bill told, the answers, the insights that he shared were phenomenal. Let's dive right into this podcast. This is just a great conversation. One of the things I want to talk about is, um, you know, during the Masters, had the opportunity to go back and watch so many of the old stuff. Yeah. Long irons. Long irons, right? And, you know, one of the cool things to me was I'm a huge Ben Crenshaw fan. Like I grew up, he was my idol. Watch, I watched 84 and 95. And just watching how many different golf swings there were out there. And like, you know, their aims were different. Their ball positions were different. It was interesting that you put a post on Facebook about how different the players were back then. I thought it'd be yardage books. No yardage books. I I thought it'd be really cool for you to talk a little bit about you caddied out there. And Mm -hmm. one of the first times I ever had you on my radio show, we talked about you caddy and I had just gotten done. I think caddying for smiley in Japan. And I, it was a, unbelievable experience for me to caddy for one of my players and be inside the ropes with them. So every, every coach should do that. Yes. hundred percent. What you'll find out is that 95% of the stuff that you work on, on the range ain't going to happen on the course. And they throw it out. pretty. And quick. if it is, then they're not going to be playing good. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> talk a little, if you don't mind, I mean, about how the swings have changed and like you talk all the time on Facebook and we've talked about it before, like, I mean, the players back then, you know, didn't have yardage books, like you said. They were more creative, worried more. You talk about the stuff you've done and Jay Haas's perceptions of things. Like, talk a little bit about that, how players have changed, old school versus new school, and, and what you think the strengths and, of, of both are. Well, you know, there's a, a wonderful old teacher and was a good player in the Pacific Northwest called Jerry Moulds. Mm-hmm. Jerry had a great line on uh, one of the golf groups on Facebook. We were talking about 
you know, many, not just a few, many of the old school players took the club inside. Mm -hmm. They did too. From Palmer to to, to so many of them. Gene Sarazen, Bobby Jones whipped it inside. And now, of course, that's discouraged greatly. And Jerry said, you know, that was acceptable to the symmetry police showed up, started drawing lines on screens and everything. But I personally believe that most elite or professional athletes were born more gifted physically, most of them. There are some grinders, you know, that figure out a way to make it and this and that. But most of them, when you think about how difficult golf is, most of them had to have whatever hand-eye coordination it is or whatever the physical skills were to hit this golf ball in the middle of the club face with everything moving. So I think the older players, because they didn't have a lot of information and because there weren't the teacher du jours like me or you or whatever, they learned to play their way and they learned their swing and they own their swing. And when they got playing bad, they didn't have to, uh, they didn't go running back to a teacher. In most cases, they got a tip from another pro. Mm -hmm. You know, they might say, hey, Billy, you know, your ball is further up in your stance than uh, used to be. And, you know, they move the ball back and you start playing good. But you didn't ever really read about people going through massive swing changes back then. When did that start, Bill? When did you first start seeing players make a lot of swing changes? Well, I think the father or the Arnold Palmer of the modern day instructors was David Ledbetter. And by what I mean by that is not only was he very competent, he just came around at a time when instructors, he gave instructors attention, like Arnold, you know, in TV and golf. Mm -hmm. And uh, pretty soon, you know, golf magazines were paying attention to instructors. They were talking about instructors on TV. Probably the Tony Ruggiero's of the world saw stuff like that and said, I want to be like that. I want to be like Butch or, or whatever. And then the information age hit. And this whole thing took off of all the all the information that we have, which I don't think is any question has produced more good players. I don't know if it's produced as many great players, but it's definitely produced more good players. And you would know more than any with your junior programs and all the people that you teach. But I think that if you go back, you know, if you look at Arnold and Gary Player and Lee Trevino and Jack, boy, they had their own swings. You know, they, they were not uh, swinging by the numbers, let's say. And so what happened is that they didn't have anybody telling them that they couldn't be any good taking it inside, let's say. No one ever told Sam Snead he aimed too far to the right and took it too far in and then came over that plane too much on the forward swing. It, I can use the word plane nowadays because you might get scolded by the swing geeks on that. You know? I'll always let you. And then... If someone told Trevino that he couldn't name 50 yards left and take it outside and drop it under with a four-knuckle grip and be any good, if they'd have told him that when he was 12 years old, we would have never heard of Lee Trevino. But these two guys, if you ask the players from their era who were the top three players or ball strikers, Sam Snead and Lee Trevino would have been on every single list without the benefit of instruction, basically, and without the benefit of uh, all the information we have. Look at Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer had a great swing. Everybody got thrown off by his follow-through. 
But boy, you look at some of his fundamentals. Boy, they were good. Look at Gary Player. And so I think what's lost in the shuffle here a little bit with me anyway, is that swings don't win tournaments, players do. And so when a player isn't confused about a swing constantly, they get to own it, I think. And then when the pressure's on, they don't have that much confusion about what they're doing. Uh, Bob Golby, Jay Haas's uncle, played a lot with Sam Snead. He, he became so close to Sam, he was uh, said the eulogy at Sam's funeral. So that's a pretty good friend. And I said to him one time, I said, did, did Sam ever help you with your game? He said, well, he couldn't really help me because I was barrel chested. I had a short flat swing or quick. And, you know, Sam was Sam. He was the most graceful player that ever lived. He said, but he did tell me a couple things that were very helpful. And one of them was that when he was under pressure, whatever grip pressure he had on his left hand at a dress, it could be loose one day, it could be tighter the next. It didn't make any difference to him. But whatever that was, he tried to keep that exact pressure on the club throughout his swing. Well, you could measure now, that's probably not happening. But that was a thought that Sam Sneed used, you see. And when you think about it, that's a thought that would help a player because he, it's a thought that didn't relate to being fearful of the result. The other one was that there were two circles in the swing, the swing that the circle that the club head was on and the circle that the hands were on. And you don't want to crisscross those a lot, you know. And so here's, by some people's account, the greatest player that ever lived because of his longevity. And he had swing thoughts that uh, wouldn't pass the measurement test. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you one thing, the people taking the measurements sure wouldn't want to play them. <laughs> because they're going to get it handed to them. So I think we have to always be uh, aware of this thing called talent. Some people have talent. You've worked a lot with Lucas Glover. Mm -hmm. But if I was standing a fair way away and I saw Lucas swinging, I wouldn't have known that you changed anything, to be honest with you, even though you have, because he's still going to have the down cock and he's still going to have you know, the speed of his swing and things like that. And so as teachers, I think when you're working with elite players, uh, my father taught us, and I've said this to you on your show before, that don't look at what's wrong with their swing. Look at why it works. And I think nowadays we have a lot of teachers that you know, nothing bothers me more than, you know, to be on Facebook and you've got a guy that can't break 85 telling you what's wrong with Roy McIlroy's swing. I mean, come on, you know, I mean, you ever seen this guy hit a golf ball, you know, because he had a, because he hit a couple drives to the right in some tournament, you know, his swing is all wrong. And so I'm, I'm a little bit against all that kind of stuff. I'm a big believer in talent and I'm a big believer in how hard the game is at that level. There's never been a perfect player. I don't know what a perfect swing is. The best, most repeating swing I've ever seen is Lee Trevino's. You know, we actually got to see it caddying in a tournament. Uh, I don't think Nicholas gets nearly the credit for the ball striker that he was. Incredible ball striker. But nobody ever told us to swing like Lee Trevino, but they'll tell us to swing like Robert Rock. You know? Why do, why do people not try to emulate more what Jack and Lee did? No one ever emulated his putting style. It's crazy. Nobody, which is intriguing to me. Mm -hmm. 
No one ever got crouched down and did the little piston back and through with that right wrist hinge, you know, just was like a piston going back and forth. It, it was actually, if you took away all of the um, looks at a dress, his stroke, I thought, was really good. Right. Really. Right. But it might not fit Mr. Perfect, you know, perfect mm -hmm. setup and perfect this and perfect that, all that stuff. So we have all this stuff to measure now. And you see it when you're on social media and all this. Do you think that the ability to measure has helped the player or the teacher more? Or neither of us? I think it depends on the teacher and it depends on the, the player. You know, Claude was saying today on the show, I just did that, uh, you know, Justin Rose loves all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Loves it. Dustin Johnson only wants to know how far the ball's going. Okay. Right. And then I told the story of years ago, they used to have a tournament called the Southern Open at Green Valley in uh, Columbus, Georgia. And it was always in the fall. And they had a very small driving range. And by the end of the week, it was just dirt. There wasn't any grass on it. And one afternoon after the round, Jerry Pate, who was really good back in those mm -hmm. days, really good, was hitting one irons off the dirt. It was unbelievable the shot he was hit. High, solid draws. It just... And he had kind of a Sam Snead-like quality flow and rhythm, and you couldn't really teach exactly the way Jerry did it. And this guy in the gallery said, Jerry, you know, those balls are going about 10 yards left to where you're aiming. I'll clean up what he said, but Jerry turned around and says, I don't care where I'm aiming, they're going where I'm looking. <laughs> well, nowadays, a teacher might have changed that. He said, oh, you're aiming too far right, you know. Even though you're all hitting them within 12 feet of the hole from 225, you know, it doesn't fit the model of perfect aim. Well, what would you have told Snead that he was aiming too far right or Lee was aiming too far left? And if Dave Pels, uh, I think years ago, came out that all golfers misaligned from three feet, 98%, how the hell is a guy going to aim perfect from 280 yards? You know? So, some guys just have the ability to get the club going where it's supposed to go with a, with a putt face that matches that pen, and they can repeat it. I don't know, Tony, did you ever see Lanny Watkins play in his prime? You know, I, I saw him in the late 80s. I saw him at the Texas Open. I watched him play a few holes in 80. Well, he was really uh, When I say he was really good, he was really good. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of anyone say try to swing like Lanny Watkins? No. 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 Really good. You ever hear anybody say swing like Calvin Pete? No. You ever hear anyone say swing like Robert Rock? All the time. And I like, don't get me wrong, I like Robert Rock. I'm not picking on him, by the way. And I, anybody that's good enough to win tour events on these tours is good. My point is, is why is Robert Rock swing better than Hale Irwin's? Because Hale Irwin's record would indicate <laughs> there's a huge disparity. Right. But no one ever says swing like Hale or swing like Longer. And so I, that's where I kind of draw the line on all this stuff. And uh, I just think really good players, if they're not over-instructed, I think can last longer personally. Well, this is a, a question that I have then, you know, as someone just from the outside, how do you know when to change something and when to leave it alone? That is the, uh, in this day and age, a multi-million dollar question. And I think the problem is, Tony knows this, everybody thinks it's easier to teach the tour player. It's actually very hard because if you get their stroke average to go down a half a stroke per round, you're God. 
if it goes up a half a stroke, they might not have a job. And so if you not guess wrong, but if you start working on the wrong stuff, they might not ever get it back. And so I think you have to be very, very careful with what you teach the elite golfer. And there's a graveyard filled of tour players that try to get better uh, rather than working on their own stuff. So I go back to what my dad taught all his boys that you figure out why their swing works. And when it's off, what can you soften? But good players don't necessarily need total reconstruction jobs all the time just to fit a model or. I think we all have preferences, but, you know, you look at how solid a Sergio Garcia hits it, you know. Uh, I don't know. You could maybe teach somebody to do it, but does that mean they're going to be able to hit it as good as Sergio and repeat it under pressure? So at the end of the day, I'll go back to what Jay Haas told me many years ago, that we were working on something and he said, uh, I don't mind what we're working on, but I, I can't do it the way you're suggesting. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, because I'll never think of what you're telling me on the back nine on Sunday. <laughs> so even though I could have quote on Ben quote right, or if I had the benefit of track man and I could have shown him the numbers were right, if he didn't feel he could do it under pressure, then it's wrong, basically. Right. Barney Adams said something very interesting, the, the great club maker. I asked him, of all the players that he dealt with in his whole life, tour players, which one knew the most about clubs? He said, none of them. <laughs> they didn't know anything about it. And he said, what I've learned, and I love this line. He said, what I learned is that great players can make two plus two equal five work. That's pretty good. It is pretty good. And so we've seen a lot of good players that have very awkward swings, but the ball goes where they want it to go. And eventually, to me, the best swings are the ones that hold up under pressure and hold up under duress. And that basically tells me who's got the best swing. See, I think there's a big difference between a pretty swing and a good swing. So there's a lot of pretty swings. People tell me I got a pretty swing. And I say, well, that's great. Tell the ball that because the ball's going sideways. I don't care what it looks like, you know. <laughs> so... As instructors, I think teaching the elite player, back to your question, you have to be very, very careful what you change because they have such a complex field system. And you start crisscrossing those wires, they might not ever get it back, ever. And then We've got a comment from John over here, which is interesting. And Tony, I think this kind of will feed right into you, but it says, uh, John said, I think the search for a perfect swing, if you like it, is player-driven with young kids. They hit a great shot and they say, yeah, but I don't like the way that it looks. I think that's a really common thing, Tony, that you probably battle with quite a bit with, with your guys videoing your swings and trying to tweak stuff and et cetera. I mean, you know, I'm trying to get young players to learn how to play better. And I, I'm trying to get my players to play with my young guys. Like I took a couple, a junior golfer who's really good, 16, and, uh, and a kid in college that I think the world of that was a late bloomer, got good late over to Frederica last weekend, and I bet I didn't watch him hit 20 balls. I sent him out. Lucas played 36 holes with them two days in a row. And these kids came back, said it was the greatest experience, how much they learned. But I'm trying to get kids on the golf course to just figure out how to score and win more than I am just filming stuff. But it's a challenge because of all the technology. But, you know, I mean, I, I think the, for building people to win golf tournaments, 
I think they've got to be able to go out there and, you know, I've had, uh, we've all had tour players, but I've had tour players that when they lose it, they can't figure it out themselves and they've always got to be coming back. And I don't think that makes them better players. Yeah, I think young players should play more, uh, gamble a little bit for a dollar or a Coke <laughs> or something. I think they practice too much in pursuit of all this perfection. I've told Tony this story, but I can remember, I don't know, five, six years ago, playing with Jay Haas and Bill Haas at Chanticleer in South Carolina. And Bill was really playing good, and Bill had an effortless way of looking when he was playing well. And we got on the 17th tee, and uh, Jay, uh, Bill was eight under par. And I turned to his dad, Jay, and I said, boy, Bill is really playing good. And Jay turned to me quite naturally and said, well, I'm only two shots behind them and the match isn't over yet. <laughs> and what I got out of that is that they were playing golf that day. They were putting out, they were shooting a score. And I think ultimately you're going to be based on not how good your swing looks. It's going to be on what you shoot. I mean, it's a pretty cut and dry thing. And, and uh, golf is the most honest, unbiased sport in the world, boys. What'd you shoot? And uh, Jay told me in 1978 when I started caddying for him that he had the easiest job in the world to figure out. And that was, I've got to learn how to shoot a lot of 33s, 4s, and 5s. Because if I shoot a lot of 35s, 6s, and 7s, I won't have a job. And so everything I do is based on, you know, he said, I, I've never really played a course where I couldn't shoot 34 on that nine holes. And to do it, I don't have to make nine birdies, you see. I got to make seven pars and two birdies. Well, what he told me is that he thought about scoring. He never once said, I got to get the club perfectly in P5.5. You know, he, he said, I got to learn how to make three birdies and one bogey on this knot, you know, and how do I do it? And, and so I think the players that understood that it's what, what you shoot that truly counts. But as you know, Tony, nowadays with all the information, that's a hard sell because I was in my teaching center yesterday looking at my swing, you know, and I know better. And I'm trying to change it. And I'm almost 70 years old. And a lot of what I do ain't going to change. But I have the, the curiosity to change. And I ended up my session by saying, you know, my dad used to tell me I hit my best shots when I imitated Trevino. So I started imitating Trevino, in my mind, imitating Trevino. And I started hitting good shots, you know. Now I've got pictures of my dad all over my teaching set. And I'm looking around these pictures thinking, God, I hope he's not watching me because I'm kind of validating what he told me was correct 50 years ago, and I wouldn't listen to him. <laughs> Wouldn't that go along with you? I mean, I remember earlier in the year, and you posted some stuff, and we, I, if, if you text Bill Harmon a video to watch of a player, you're going to get one back of him. I know that. But, uh, <laughs> but where you said that you were hitting it better trying to hit a fade, so that would go along. With yeah, that. no question. But I'm an inside-out uh, I've got to do it in push fades. Right. I'm not going to be a swing left fader. And I've been trying to swing left and fade it. And it, it, it just doesn't match up to what I do, you know. And so I'm trying to be somebody that I'm not. And at age seven, almost 70, I mean, where the hell am I going to go with that? I don't have a lot of time to. <laughs> My skills are. Uh... An old guy said to me one time, he said, you know, Bill, it's easy to jump out of a roller coaster when it's going uphill. But when it's going downhill, it's hard to get out of it. But my yeah. game is going downhill on that roller coaster. So I got to find something that 
I still play pretty good. I just want to be able to have uh, more predictability, I guess, what I like. I don't use the word consistent. I use the word predictable. Predictability. Cordy, you've got some more questions there. I've seen some stuff pop up. Yeah, we do. This is this kind of leads into that. This is from Charlie. He says, agree with your analysis on, on swings, whether they you know are, are pretty or not. However, when a homemade swing goes awry, as an instructor, how do you know where to start or how, or how to fix that? Well, it would depend on whether I've seen this guy's homemade swing my whole life, let's say. If he came to me, you know, I'd ask him a bunch of questions on, you know, what ball flight does he prefer? What the ball doing when he's playing his best? And then I would probably go from there and then figure out what he's doing in his swing to hopefully steer him back in the, in the right direction. I tell an interesting story. I won't tell you who said it, but when David Duvall started to lose his game, an old pro, old playing pro, not a teaching pro, said he might not ever get it back. And I said, well, how come? And he said, because he, he had his own set of rules and fundamentals. You know, he had a four-knuckle grip. He was laid off and shut at the top. He rotated his body out of there so quick, which held the club off from releasing. And if he goes to any other teacher that tries to change any of that stuff, he's never going to get it back. And he said, the only way he can get it back, in my opinion, is to go hit balls by himself and try to figure it out or maybe stayed with his coach at Georgia Tech or wherever he went to school. But he did try to change some things, and he never did get it back. Mm-hmm. And the guy went on to say, when a player doesn't have quote-unquote fundamentals, and they lose their game, they don't always have something to fall back on. And he went on to say Littler lost his game for a while, but Littler had beautiful fundamentals, you know, great grip, you know, all that stuff. And so this guy's feeling was that David needed to figure this out all on his own, go back to his own senses, his own feels. And so I think it's a very good question. I don't know if I have an exact answer for it. That's where I think you need a set of eyes more than a coach. That's where you need somebody that's seen you play well your whole life, that knows that they can't change everything you do. My brother Dick, my late brother Dick, used to say natural players are one swing thought away from shooting 64. But you give them two or three swing shots, they might shoot 84. (laughs) And so I think that's a very good question, and it's one of those things that uh, I've had to deal with for since 1978 with Jay Haas. He got his own action, and what I've learned to do is to try not to cr- crisscross the wires of his fields. And uh, field players are—it's uh, hard to take an artist to becoming a mechanic, and when that goes awry, try to get him back to being artist. It, it, it very rarely can you get him back. Mm-hmm. So you better stay with the artistic point of it, I believe. I'm just curious your thoughts on that, T. You know, someone with kind of a, you know, what do you do if you have a non-traditional swing, like Bill was talking about earlier, what are your thoughts on that? You know, how do you... Well, again, I mean, I try to find out, you know, I guess, Bill, I don't think you'd call Lucas a traditional swing. I mean, right? It's, you know, a little difference. I mean, I think you try to go back and find out as much as you can about what they do or what Mm -hmm. they felt or what they did when they played their best, you know, and and I'm going to use him as an example, but... Like when he played his best, he really hooked it, hit a lot of hook, you know, really curved it. And so 
just tried to get him back to doing that, to curving or shaping the ball the way he did when he played good and see if old feelings would come back, you know, instead of – which was a great learning experience for me as a teacher because, you know, I had to step out of my shell a little bit and figure out how to get him to hit hooks and to get him to feel old things. I mean, I've learned more working with him as a teacher than I'm certain I've helped him. Well, I think we always have to get out of our comfort zone and our preferences. I think we all have preferences. But at the same time, there are people that I can remember when I first saw pictures of Lanny Watkins at impact, Mm -hmm. his left arm was bent and his left wrist was cut. No one was teaching bend your left elbow and cup your left wrist at impact. So if you looked at a still photo, you would have thought of kind of high, puffy, nothing looking flight. If you just looked at that, this is back in the 70s. And then I played with him in the National Amateur 1968 practice round, Toyota. And I got news for you. He didn't have high, puffy <laughs> ball flight. <laughs> and then I, in the 80s, I caddied for him. And he didn't have high, puffy ball flight. In fact, he had the most beautiful penetrating draws you ever saw. But if you looked at his impact position, it was very, very odd, you know. And so if you tried to get him to have, say, DeChambeau's or Trevino's impact position, he wouldn't have broken 100. My dad said that one time. He said that if you took Trevino's position at the top and told him to have a downswing like Lanny Watkins, he wouldn't break 90. And conversely, if you took Lanny's position at the top, hands underneath, cup, and all that stuff, and told him to come down like Trevino, he wouldn't have broken 90. So good swings have to match up. And as long as they match up, they are good swings. I said on the, the show recent, uh, this morning with my brother, Butch, and uh, nephew, Claude, that when I started caddying for Jay, it was kind of the end of the line of uh, the Miller Barbers of the world. Every player from that era that played with Miller Barber would tell you he hit the ball more solid than anybody on the tour, swing in and swing out, day in and day out. Now, have we ever told anybody to swing like Miller Barber? No. And so you'd have to say that was a homespun golf swing. Lanny's was homespun. Uh, but the thing that we can't measure, guys, and um, I said this this morning on this other show, that did you guys watch the uh, last dance, the two hours of Michael Jordan's? Yes. In those two hours, did anybody ever talk about technique? No. Not one time. What did they talk about? The insides. Winning. What's inside the player? Now, I love your guy, Lucas, brother, like a, a Lucas Clever, like a brother. Mm-hmm. But Lucas doesn't have confident body language if you watch him. He doesn't. It's not a criticism. It's an observation. Okay? You know, I think Lucas is better than his career has shown, personally. I think Jay Haas is better than his career has shown, and that's a pretty damn good career. Excellent. But Jay has confided in me that he's gone through many periods of his life where he didn't think he was good enough. Michael Jordan never (laughs) said in those two hours that he didn't think he was good enough. And so those are the things that we can't measure. It doesn't show up on TrackMan, what people think of themselves. And so Jay told a story that the very first President's Cup that he was a vice captain for uh, Freddie was up at Harding Park. And Michael Jordan was one of the kind of honorary assistant captains. And Michael rode with Jay almost every day. He said, every day I'm spending hours with Michael Jordan in the car. 
And he said, Michael Jordan constantly talked about body language, how people carry themselves, show you what they're thinking. Interesting, huh? Yeah. That doesn't show up on a machine. And so every player has self-esteem issues, insecurities, fears. That's, that's part of it. You know, look at all the different juniors that you've worked with, Tony. I bet you've had some that have not been successful, that had much more talent than a kid that was just a scrapper. Mm-hmm. You know, that would just spit in his glove and say, let's go play, man. I'll play it. Mm-hmm. And the other kid with the talents trying to be perfect at P4, and he wakes up an hour later and he's four over after five, and the other kid's two under, you know. And, but the one guy looks like he's got better swing, but he doesn't know how to play, and he doesn't know how to manage himself. And How to get out of his own. God, the older I get, i got to be honest with you, the less I care about swing technique. I'm techniqued out. I really am. I care about the individual. I like watching them. Mm-hmm. like watching how they act under the gun. And who's the one that's acted the best in the last three or four years under the gun? Brooks Kepka. Walks around like, you ain't beating me. No one ever says swing like Brooks Kepka, do they? No, you don't see very much of that. You don't see, you know, legs dead straight at impact and keep the head down. You know, no one says swing like him, but he's beating everybody, mm-hmm. you know. So we can't measure what's inside a person. And it kind of goes back, Gordy, to your question is, you know, how do we change the homespun swing? Well, how do we work with that and not change who that person is? You take away, Ben Hogan told my dad this story that only my father knew because he's the one that was told to. He was playing with Hogan at Seminole one time. Have you played there, Tony? No, I have not. Yeah. So the 12th hole kind of goes back towards the ocean. It's elevated tee, and there was junk on the left back in the 40s. I don't know what's over there now. And they were playing with Kerry Middlecoff and Jimmy DeMere. So it was a pretty good group. And all three of them hit their drives in the right rough because they didn't want to go left. And he said, Hogan got up on the right side of the tee and aimed it right down the left side. You know, he's going to challenge this ball. And my dad said he hit it dead straight, beautiful trajectory, and it was maybe a yard in the left rough. It was actually a very fine shot. He finished the round. Hogan said, I'll be right in. I'm going to go hit some balls. My dad said, well, when Hogan goes to hit balls, I go to watch. Hogan went to the range. He took out a driver and started slicing drivers 50 yards. Worst looking shots you ever saw. Finally, my dad said to him after about 20, and what the hell are you doing? He said, you know that drive I hit on 12? My dad says, yeah, Ben. But he said, you know, that ball didn't hook. You know, it just didn't cut. And Hogan says, you don't get it. And my dad says, get what? He said, I never had a hooking problem. I fear it. I'm breaking down the fear. See, how about that? That's good. I fear the hook. Okay, Butch told me that Tiger definitely feared it for years. And he got driving it bad. When there was trouble on the left, where was that baby going? Straight right. See, that's not your swing. That's That's fear. fear. So that's not going to show up on the video camera. See, we don't know what he was thinking as he started his downswing, right? And so is that a swing problem? We've talked about it with some of your students. Is that a swing issue or is it a a self-management issue? Most players don't want to admit that they're fearful. We don't want to admit that we have something wrong with us and we're not perfect, you see. And so it's not always a swing 
correction that has to be made. Sometimes it's a, you have to identify the thought process that will not allow you. Curtis Strange said it, I did a speech with him somewhere along the line. He said, you know, at the end of the day, you just got to get up and make a good swing. You know, you know, when you're nervous, that's the deal. That's the competition. Can I make a good swing or not? You know, and if I don't think I can, and I don't have the inner arrogance to think I can, it won't make any difference what teacher I go to. It won't make any difference what the numbers on track me. So you learn that, that's the inner part of the game that we have a hard time, you know, finding out about. Can you learn that inner arrogance or is it just something they're born with? I think you can get better. I think if you, uh, I definitely think that you can learn to deal with fear. I definitely believe you can do that. And once you do that, I think the inner arrogance, whatever that term would be, will maybe appear without you knowing it. But I, I think every player, other than Jack Nicholas and Tiger pre-scandal, uh, those were the only two players I ever saw that didn't appear to deal with self-doubt on every shot, by the way. These guys deal with it on every shot. They just know the good ones know what to do with it for 30 seconds. They know what to do for those 30 seconds. And the ones that don't know what to do at the elite level, and I'm looking forward to doing the, the, the camp with you in September. If you're carrying fear during your swing, nobody's got enough talent to overcome that for a career. Nobody. nobody. So you better learn to deal with it. And that ain't going to show up on the, the symmetry police ain't going to be able to figure that one out. Am I going to have my teaching credentials taken away from me because I haven't talked about shaft angles enough yet? Then I'm going to try to get Bill Harmon certified at the end. Of the <laughs> You're going to get me thrown in the, in the funny farm, boy. I might pay somebody $249 to get Bill Harmon certified at the yeah, end. Yeah, the there you go, boy. <laughs> People are loving this, Bill. Thank you. A bunch of good comments coming in. Um, we've talked about ball flight. You mentioned it a number of times now. Somebody actually asked, what do you think about players that try to hit the ball both ways, fade and draw? And I'll just, I'll tack on to the end of that. You know, do you think people should just stick with one shot shape? That's a very good question because there've been a lot of wonderful players that just stuck with their shot shape. Uh, Arnold hated fades, hated them. Kenny Perry probably never tried to hit one. Bruce Liskey never tried to hit a hook. Frank Beard was a leading money winner, and they used to joke that a Frank Beard fade was a 20-yard draw. So I think if a person has the confidence to play their game and perfect what they have, that is a real asset. But then there are other people that are artists. My father was totally fascinated what he said with the ball in the air. So he was a shot maker. Jay Haas is a shot maker. Those players, I think, play with their eyes. They see the shot. I'll bring Frank Beard into this conversation. He was leading money winner in 1969. I've learned a lot uh, from Frank about fear and stuff like that. But he played five or six years ago with Jay Haas, casual round. And he came back to me and he said, uh, I knew Jay was good. I didn't know he was this good. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, Bill, every pro gets on a, a tee and they see the right shot, but they can't play the right shot. So if they're smart, they won't try to play the right shot. They'll play their shot. Jay actually played those shots. He played for 18 holes. He hit a golf shot on every swing. 
I saw the shots, but I can't hit fade, so I end up not doing it. And he said, I only knew three or four players that I ever played with on tour that could do what he did. He, he meant, one of them he mentioned was Al Guyberger. Al Guyberger, he said, Chi-Chi. They would hit the exact shot that was required. We all saw it. Now, the ones that tried to hit it that couldn't do it, off the tour. <laughs> so Frank said, my strength was that I knew I couldn't hit a fade. So I didn't try to do it. I'd hook, if the pin was in the right, I would hook it in the middle of the green and let my putter make a par and I'd get out of there. But I wouldn't make doubles and I wouldn't make stupid bogeys. So I think the other thing I think is important is that nowadays the ball doesn't curve as much. So everyone says these guys aren't great shot makers. Well, we don't know if they're great shot makers or not because they never had to be. So back in the days with the wooden clubs and the different balls, the ball curved so much that you could play all these shots. So now we have a generation of how far I can hit it. I'm going to bomb it off the tee, and if I'm in the rough, doesn't make any difference. i got a wedge to the green. Right. It's not that the kids aren't shot makers. It just was never a requirement when there's – so I don't blame the players today. And so I think if you're – I think it's good to practice hitting different shots because it helps your concentration and helps you manage your thoughts. But coming down the back nine on Sunday, you better go with what you got. you got to be able to do – Steve Elkington told me something one time. I'll never forget this. I thought this was brilliant. And he said, other than the really great players, he said to a guy like me, if I'm going to win a tournament, and Tony will agree with this, I believe, on the back nine on Sunday, if I'm going to win, I'm probably going to have to hit three shots that I don't want to, that I don't want to hit. And if I don't want to hit them, I'm going to finish third or fourth. So will I challenge myself at that point to hit that shot to win the tournament? And I thought that was very interesting coming from a player. And he then went on to say that when Sergio lost the British Open at Carnoustie to Harrington, if you recall, in the playoff, he said that Sergio Garcia was top five driver of a golf ball of anyone he'd ever seen in his life. Said, I'm talking trajectory, curve. This guy could hit any shot you wanted with a driver. He got to the last hole at Carnoustie. Greatest player to have not won a major at that time. Mm -hmm. Needed a par to win, and what did he do? He laid up. And he said, right then and there. Now, when a guy goes against his strength under pressure, is also very telling. The best driver in the world at that time would not put his best foot forward to win the major. So he made bogey. He came in the playoff. They played a four-hole playoff, I believe. Right. Came to 18, two back, hit driving seven iron about 12 feet. So that's not swing, right? So Steve said, here's a guy, the best driver I've ever seen. The ball was in his court. He took away his greatest asset. He went away from his best club. So we'll fast forward. Was it last year that Rory won the Players' Championship? Yes. Yeah, the one before the canceled one this year. Dumbest shot I've ever seen he hit on the last fall. And the best shot I've ever seen. He had a one-shot lead and he hit driver there. So the dumbest shot I've ever seen him on. And he striked it. And the dumbest shot became the best shot I've ever seen. Right. You know why? Because that's his best club. And he said, you know what? I'm going to go down swinging with my best club. That's an inside job there. That was an inside decision. People have asked me what's the best shot I've ever seen up until that point 
was Angel Cabrera's drive at Oakmont. Mm-hmm. See, an educated, trackman-fed guy would have never swung as hard as he could on that hole and driven at 367 yards with a one-shot lead. They had tried to fit it in the fairway. They would have had a lot, don't do this, don't do that. Well, he'd bogeyed 17, and he was irritated. And as he was walking to the 18th tee, his coach, Charlie Epps, was in the ropes. And he said in Spanish, with a lot of bad words, I ain't laying up. He swung as hard as he could and hit a 367-yard drive down the middle of the fairway. Rory's shot was the dumbest and best shot I ever saw on the 18th hole. Sergio didn't put it, put it on the line. Now, he must have learned from that because when he won the Masters, he played golf coming in that was beyond belief how good it was. No question. So maybe he might have said to himself, you know what? In the back of my mind, I gave that tournament away because I didn't have whatever it took. It's not a knock. And he corrected it. You got to give him credit for that. One more question. First of all, just a comment. Mark was saying, best podcast I've heard. You don't hear this kind of insight anymore. Thanks, Mark. Uh, Bill. Mark Evershed? Makes me look good. Bill makes me look good. (laughs) Well, you don't say anything. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Line me up, brother. Oh, I know. I know. You know, it's not lost on me that my cancer was tongue cancer. Okay, it was. (laughs) It was appropriate, really. (laughs) You you haven't lost the ability to use it since coming. Yeah, I do. I should have gotten tongue cancer with my BS. (laughs) Hey, we we do have kind of a. This is a a broad question, so maybe a a short take on this because we could talk about this for the next couple hours, probably. But in general, if someone who's a uh, who's a five handicap and average good golfer trying to get down to scratch, what mix of playing versus practice is best for that? That's a good question to get us going for a little bit. Well, it is a good question. I would say identify your weakness, whatever that is. Tony might know this more than I. There was a, a stat guy on tour that came up with some system there. You gave yourself a point every time you either three-putted, made a bogey on a par five, Tiger or a bogey with a wedge in your hand, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so if you do that, if you told that five handicap that every time he made a bogey with a wedge in his hand, every time he three-putted or made a six on a par five, and he started keeping track of those things, and basically see how many strokes that you throw away from a wedge on in per round, it's fascinating how much easier it is to improve. I just read on Facebook recently that Howard Twitty said the most important stat in golf is the amount of bogeys made per round. Think of that. What does Tiger say when he's leading a tournament? I don't want to make a bogey today. And if I don't make a bogey, they're going to have to come get me. So the greatest, most dominating player, I don't know if he's the greatest, but most dominating player that ever lived when he tees off with a big lead, the back of his mind, if I don't make a bogey and I don't give them anything, they can't beat me. So I, I would tell that person, where do I th- just throw shots away? Just give them away, you know. And usually it's from a wedge on in or, and or when they can't make a full swing. Love it. Simple, practical advice for folks. It's great. Bill, this has been, this has been great. Appreciate Thank you. It. Appreciate your time. Some good stories, man. It's a great perspective. Appreciate it so much. Bill, thanks for sitting in as always. You know always, how much Tony. I appreciate it and value your You're going to always bring me out of the bullpen, you know, if someone pulls up lame. <laughs> oh, I love it. I mean, people <laughs> heard my shit enough on this thing. That's nice to have somebody else come on. 
<laughs> uh, Bill, you're the best. Thanks, uh, guys. We'll probably Thanks, bring you to do it. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Tour Coach with Tony Ruggiero. If you enjoyed this, make sure to hit subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you are listening to this podcast. You can stay up to date because we have weekly episodes coming your way with fascinating people in the world of golf instruction at the highest level. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned. If you want to learn more about Tony, head over to dosweepersgolf.com to get all the details on what he's up to. Maybe you want to see him, grab a lesson, or go to one of his camps, pick up his book, Lessons from the Legends. You can do that there. If you want to see Tony in action with some videos and other content, head over to golfsciencelab.com slash Tony to get more info there. This episode was powered by the Golf Science Lab and was edited, mixed, and produced by Just Hit Published Productions. There's one thing if you know about me, if you've listened to the Dew Sweepers, you've come to listen to me talk, is you know I'm big on loyalty. We give 100% here at the Dew Sweepers. We put a lot of emotional investment into everything we do with every one of our players. And the same can be said for our partners and the folks that have been with us for the long haul and help the Dew Sweepers, help our juniors, help us get to our tour players. And so I want to give a special thanks to our sponsors. Our sponsors are, first and foremost, Buick and our local Buick dealers here around the Southeast, Shrixon Cleveland Golf, who've been with me for over a dozen years, and their belief and support of what we do here with the Dew Sweepers. And lastly, the folks at Vineyard Vines. The folks at Vineyard Vines love what we do with junior golf. They support us on the road. There isn't a better family or group of people that are going to help us look our best, play our best, and have more fun than the folks at Vineyard Vines. So special thanks to our sponsors, Please support those as you get the opportunity. And for more information about any of those, check us out at dosweepersgolf.com or you can always check me out on Instagram at the Dewsweeper.